you have your Bible, please turn with me to Genesis 2 and 3 this morning. Genesis chapter 2. We'll be looking at Genesis 2 and 3 this morning. And a message that I am calling a garden lesson for godly fathers. We have been going through our summer in the Psalms as we do. But as we did with our Mother's Day message this year, I I found it fitting in light of the context of our culture and the context of where we are as a church with many young fathers and new fathers who are are filling this church and what excitement that brings to focus our minds on these days we are called to give honor to who honor is due, today being our fathers, to outline what God's mandate is for fathers. What is it that God desires godly fathers to be who reflect Him and demonstrate His will for fathers in this world and the impact that that can have. But before reading and going through Genesis 2-3, looking at what these garden lessons that God has for godly fathers this morning... There are two passages I want to open with this morning as we prepare our hearts to hear the words of this message. What's fascinating about Scripture when it comes to God's instruction to fathers is that often God's instruction to fathers, which is actually not very much, there's not a ton of prescriptions that God gives directly to fathers. In many ways, one of the things you're going to see in Scriptures is that the Scriptures assume fatherly care. As a father has compassion for his children, so does the Lord to those who fear Him. As a father shows love and demonstrates kindness, so our Father in Heaven does to those who trust in Him. So it's so amazing. Scripture almost assumes fatherly care, fatherly nurturing. In other words, the idea of of fatherly abandonment and neglect is unknown and foreign to the concept and worldview of the Scriptures. So what's amazing, though, is so often the prescriptions and commands given to fathers in the Bible are framed in a negative connotation. Now, what do I mean by negative? I don't mean in a bad way. I mean that rather than saying, fathers, you should do this with your children. You should play with them more. Fathers, you should do this. Rather than it being framed in a positive commandment, it is framed in a negative meaning. Fathers, do not do this. Don't do that. It's it's amazing how that's framed. And there are two particular passages in the New Testament, almost in passing as Paul is just kind of providing some practical application to the households, that he says to fathers, and I want you to hear these words because they're powerful. First Colossians 3.21 Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Lest they become discouraged. That word literally means disheartened. Purposeless. Empty. Lest they become empty. That is a fascinating reality. What is it that we could do to leave our children discouraged? 
There's another one. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. What's amazing is, Paul, the, the English translates those words the same, provoke. But they're not the same word in Greek. Colossians 3, to provoke is merely to, to move or to direct. Do not direct your children in such a way lest they become discouraged. Don't do something that's going to bring discouragement in their life. Whereas this word provoke here literally means to poke, to prod, to stir to anger, to stir to wrath. So in other words, the first one, Colossians 3, is don't do generalized things that are going to bring discouragement to your family, to your children. Ephesians 6 Don't prod and poke your children to the point you drive them to wrath. Discouragement and anger are the great two principles and attributes that the New Testament is commanding the fathers of homes to not lead their children to. Discouragement and anger. As someone who is serving as a military chaplain who has been a pastor, I can tell you that in the numerous counseling sessions I have had with young men and young women over the past five, six years, predominantly, if I could summarize the majority of those meetings, they are discouragement and anger. Discouragement and anger. And so many of the issues that are marked in their life that they're dealing with now in their marriages, that they're dealing with in their personal life, that they're dealing with with addictions or anything like that, when we slowly begin walking it back, it's amazing how often it goes back to an abusive home, a fatherless home. Almost, almost every one of them goes back to that. There is always exceptions. But overwhelmingly, it is a fatherless or a father abusive home that led to children, led to men and women growing up discouraged and angry. Can you not look out over our culture and see such discouragement and anger everywhere. You know, in many ways, it's almost as if America needs a dad. And unfortunately, in the examples and models they continue to put up themselves for as leaders, they're getting everything but a quality one. And that's across the board, both sides. Looking and longing for true, faithful leadership and care that doesn't prod discouragement and anger, but raises up in the discipline and instruction and nurture and care and compassion and mercy and love of the Lord. As I think about this, fathers, and hearing those words, because I tell you what, when I read Colossians 3 and Ephesians 6, and I read words like, don't leave your children discouraged, don't leave them angry, 
I, I, I've got to admit that that prods fear in my heart as a dad. What am I doing that is leading my children towards discouragement? Towards anger? And so as I began to think of this message, I wanted to ask myself and, and perhaps all of you here today who are fathers, what is it that we can do to help prevent our children from growing up discouraged and angry as fathers? And when we, go, when we, we look at the Bible and ask questions regarding what is God's intention? What was God's intention for manhood, for womanhood, for fatherhood, for motherhood? What was God's created intention in these areas? Then whenever we do that, whenever Scripture asks those intentions, it always points us back to the same place. It points us back to the garden. When Jesus is asked a question regarding marriage and divorce, where does He appeal to? Genesis 2. Genesis 2.24. For what God has joined together, let no man separate. In other words, what God has established as the divine decree of one man, one woman, gathered together in a single flesh unit, man cannot separate. When Paul is addressing relationships within the household, where does he go? Genesis 2. When he's dealing with male and female relations, where does he go? Genesis 2. With headship roles, where does he go? Genesis 2. In other words, in context of biblical manhood and womanhood, fatherhood and motherhood, the Scriptures point us to the divine created intention of God found in the opening prescriptions of the garden. So for Father's Day today, We're going to go back to the Garden of Eden to draw out from it what I believe are seven lessons for godly fathers based upon God's creation of Adam, His care for Adam, His um, covenantal relationship with Adam, His comfort and compassion towards Adam, and even His, I guess you could say, almost conflict resolution with Adam. Now, there are two ways to listen to this message this morning. Uh, One is to take it straightforward as a direct prescription and exhortation from the Word of God to fathers in this room. If you're a father in the room this morning, hear this as a direct exhortation from God's Word to you. But the other way is to take this as a parable, pointing to the way that our Father in Heaven cares for us. And how He has created fatherhood to be a reflection of His fatherly care for those who belong to Him in faith. Frankly, I hope that you will hear it in both senses this morning. So with that, the first lesson that I think we get from the garden is found in the creation of Adam. And we see this. A godly father knows both to whom and to where he belongs. Knows to whom and to where he belongs. Let's, let's go ahead and look at the creation of Adam here. Verse 5 through 9 of Genesis 2. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. And breathed light, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, 
and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man in whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, and the tree of life was in the midst of garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Let's talk about a few things here. So God has created the perfect domain. He has per- he's created a perfect creation. But there is one thing yet that God has yet, yet to create, and it will be the pinnacle of His creation. The only thing that He creates which is said to bear His image. And that is man, mankind. So God takes the dust of the ground, forms it and fashions it exactly into the parameters that He would have, and breathes His Spirit, His nefesh, onto the man in order for Him to become a living creature. There's something about that concept of living creature that's different from the other beast. He is an image bearer. Why? Because He alone is both the stuff of earth and yet the breath of God. That is what it is to be man. The stuff of earth and the breath of God. In other words, we are fragile and finite, and yet we are endued with immense value and meaning and purpose that no other creation or part of creation has. Notice, in other parts of God's creation, God creates as a creative whole. He creates the birds of the air. He creates the the fish of the sea. He creates the vegetation and plants. But with man... He doesn't create men in the garden and women in the garden. He created a man. And He will create a woman. He creates them singularly, individually, purposefully, intentively. Endows Him with meaning and value, but most importantly, He endows Him with spirit. Which connects Him and gives Him capacity for not just servanthood to God, but relationship with God. In other words, Adam will not be merely a servant. He will be a son of God. Adam was created, notice where? He was created outside the garden. We often get that wrong. And just think that God created the garden. Then... Sprung up Adam in it. It's not what it says. Right? Adam, God created Adam, created a perfect dwelling place, a garden, that would be the the holy of holies. The central place where in all of this cosmos He had just created, this is where God will dwell. This is where He will walk. And He places man that He had formed in the garden. Fascinating. In other words, God, man was not created to dwell outside covenant relationship with God. And if he's outside of that, he's in danger. 
If he's outside of that, he's not safe. If he's, not, if he's outside of that, there's something about who he is that's fractured. That when I'm not in that garden, there's something in me that says, it's not okay. I'm not where I belong. And we wonder why for years, men, for all of human history since the fall, have sought to attain more land through, through colonization, through imperialization, through tyranny and dictatorship and destruction and warring and ravaging and pilling. Why has men been so desirous to do that? It's because the craving for the garden in his heart cannot be satisfied by obtaining as much of the world outside of it that he can have. He pillages and he rapes and he yearns for more because what he needs most he can't find, which is to be in the garden with God. Adam was created faithfully to live under the sovereign lordship of God, to fully enjoy the fatherly care of God, and to delightfully dwell in covenantal communion with God. That's what man was created for. To live under the lordship of God, which is why the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was there to begin with. Why? I'll give you everything else to eat. It's all for you except this one tree. Well, that seems like a bad idea, God. Why would you do that? Because God always gives within His covenant sacramental signs that says, I'm Lord and you're not. I'll give you dominion over all of this, Adam. But don't you ever forget who you serve, who you are under, who your father is. Don't you ever forget who your Lord is. In other words, men, fathers, you are never to forget whom you belong to. Because the day you forget whom you belong to, you'll start trying to be God. And men make wicked gods. The day that you start acting like the God of your home, you will be a tyrant. And you will not husband and father with the fear of the Lord. And you will constantly live with the anxiety and shame of trying to be something you were never created to be. If you try to make yourself out to be God, you will live a life of constant and perpetual failure. Rather than the, the, the immense satisfaction of leading a home under the lordship of a God who truly is sovereign. But who you will one day give an account to for how you loved your wife and how you raised your children. You need to know who, to whom you belong. Secondly, you need to know where you belong. You will never be satisfied outside of covenantal relationship with God. You will never be satisfied outside of the garden because there's nothing out there for you. Everything that you need for sustenance, for life, for joy, for satisfaction, for purpose, for meaning, God has provided to you. But it's only found in context close to Him. And if you're looking for it out there, you won't find it. And you'll be bitter and angry. 
Because here's the truth, my friends. The greatest thing that you can give your wife and your children is God Himself. But you cannot give what you do not have to offer. So you need to know to where you belong and to whom you belong. If we do not know God and we do not know what it is to be under His covenantal care, we will never know how to fully bless our homes and our families. We won't. You must be born under the fatherhood of God, which only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Because of the fall, that's been fractured. You must be born again under the fatherhood of God through the greater Adam, Jesus Christ. But that's where you belong. You must be under the fatherhood of God. Why? Because fatherhood was called to be a reflection of His fatherhood. In other words, you can never be a true father if you don't know the ultimate father. So the most important thing you can do this morning, Dad, if you haven't already, is to surrender your life to Jesus Christ and to come under the fatherhood of God and to be placed in the garden of covenantal communion with the triune God of heaven. Because if you're not under Him or, in, or within Him indwelling, you are totally fractured as a father. Jeremiah 17, 7, 8 puts it this way, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. For its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. What does that look like for your home? To be a man, a father, a husband, so rooted in Christ that the streams of His living water flow through you, your words, your deeds, your care, and your compassion, so that when your, your children see you, they don't see one given in by the fear of the news headlines, not one who's constantly filling his brain and mind with what Fox News or CNN has to say, but is so filled by the Word of God that no fear enters his home. That he constantly is bearing the fruit of a glorious harvest amongst his children. Because he is not given to the fear of the world because he's rooted in God. He's rooted in the garden of covenantal relationship with him. Blessed is the man whose trust is the Lord. My friends, we are called to reflect our Father in heaven. Yes, we are imperfect reflections. But my word, who is it that they see in us in the midst of our imperfections? Do they see one who is utterly dependent upon the Lord? Do they see one who is desperate in his need day after day? Or do they see one who's trying to do it all himself? Who never is asking for help. Who's never spending a time in prayer. Who never seeks forgiveness and reconciliation and growth. Who isn't constantly yearning and learning and propagating his relationship with the Lord. That's what they need to see from you, Father. So the most important prerequisite for all human fathers 
is to belong to a Heavenly Father. It's to know to whom they belong and to where they belong. Because if that's not taken care of, no matter else what you do through the rest of this message, no matter what other lessons that you learn from here, it will always be fractured if you are not at home with the Lord. Blessed fathers. Psalm 112, 1 and 2. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in His commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord and delights in His commandments. Why? His offspring will be mighty in the land. And upright generations will be blessed. It all begins with our relationship to the Lord. If our relationship is not right with the Lord, everything else in our homes will not be in proper place. We can only love our wife and our children best when we love God most. And so godly father knows to whom and to where he belongs. Secondly, a godly father diligently nurtures his home. We see this in in God's covenantal mandate, what we call the masculine mandate, the covenantal mandate he gives to Adam. We see this in Genesis 2.15, the first part of it. There's two parts to work and keep. We'll talk about the first part. He says here, the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. That word work is the Hebrew avad. It means to tend, to care, to nurture, to provide. So this is so much more, right, than, than Adam merely being one who's just going and pruning the garden all day. No, he is to tend it, to care, to, to upkeep it, to uphold the dwelling and that which is in it that God has given him. And so, this masculine mandate, it's important for us to understand that when we look at these things that God gives to Adam as fathers, we need to see the principles in them, not so much the prescription. What do I mean by that? When God created Adam, He placed him under a covenant of works. Right? That if Adam is faithful in fulfilling the mandate, the commandments that God gave him, God would establish upon him and his posterity eternal life. So, Adam's covenantal relationship in this moment hinges upon his obedience to God's law. We are not under the covenant of works as as men today. Right? You know why? Because a greater Adam came and took upon that covenant of works and was perfect in fulfilling every one of them, Jesus Christ, so that everyone who comes under Him can indwell the righteous outpouring of His covenant faithfulness. And now we are under the covenant of grace, right? So we are not, our eternity is not based upon our works. They're based upon Christ's works. This was not the case with Adam. Nevertheless, even though this was a covenant of works, the, pre- the, the, the principles that God gives to Adam as the first father still reflect to us in our dwellings today. Why? Because this is kingdom language. This is covenantal language. We are in covenant. and This is how God wants us to live in light of our new birth under Christ Jesus. Now, how do we nurture our homes? Well, we do it both physically 
and spiritually. Physically, it's it's pretty easy how you nurture your home. You make sure you provide for it. Right? Provide for your home. As Paul writes in 1 Timothy 5.8, If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for the members of his household, he's denied the faith and worse than an unbeliever. In other words, the primary physical responsibility of husbands and nurturing their home is provision. It's care. It's ensuring that his children are physically provided for. That their homes are not living under the constant stress and anxiety of their failure to provide. It is not so that their fathers can spend more time diligently seeking the help of others rather than how he can help others. That he might work in such a way that his children can see not only his provision for his home, but his ability to provide for others through his faithful work effort. So fathers physically nurture their home with physical provision, care, sustenance, hard work, effort. Good work ethic, teaching them and and properly showing them the, the importance and value of work. Notice this. God called man to work before the fall. In other words, work is not evil. And if you know anything about men, men define themselves by their work. If you were to hear a lot of ladies talking, usually they'll sit there and talk forever about their kids. They'll talk about, you know, what they like, their passions. Women often gather around shared interest, shared things. We like this, we like that. Men often gather around shared occupation. What do you do? We find meaning in it. That's one of the first questions you'll hear when men talk. What do you do for a living? What do you do for work? Why? Because where we find our meaning, value often. It's not necessarily wrong. God established and created men to work. That is why this idea of let's just give everyone a, a universal basic income does not fix the meaning crisis. It will only elevate it. Because men do not find meaning in a purposeless existence. They find meaning in provision and value and care. Because God created us that way. But beyond physical nurturing, men are called to be the primary. Hear me now. They are called to be the primary spiritual nurturers of their home. I think we've often abrogated that responsibility. But it is not meant to be so. Just as Adam was instructed to tend the physical garden, fathers are entrusted with nurturing the hearts and souls of their children. Like delicate flowers, young hearts need nourishment, love, and guidance. And fathers have the privilege and responsibility to sow seeds of faith and and wisdom and character into the fertile soil of their children's heart. If your heart and your prayer, fathers, that your children receive the seed of the gospel, what are you doing to till their hearts? What are you doing to cut off the thorns that would choke it away? What are you doing to propagate a fertile ground so that wherever your children hear the seed of God's word, it's falling on a fertile place that might reap an abundant harvest for the Lord? I've so often heard it. We've all heard it. One of the scariest things that I ever hear my children say is, I want to be like dad when I grow up. Now, 
I'm honored by it and terrified by it. Why? Because I know my own shortcomings. I know my imperfections. I know my failures. And so when we hear our children reflect that statement of honor to you as their father, be like, Dad, then this is what should immediately permeate, permeate your heart. It's the, the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Your children need to see Christ in you beyond all other things. And I, and I prayed that earlier because I mean it. Are you more focused on, on, on living out the manhood and masculinity of John Wayne or the masculinity of Jesus Christ? Do they need to see rough you know, tough-collared men and all of those things. I'm not undermining manhood. I'm just telling you today, the greatest picture of manhood that has ever walked on this earth is named Jesus Christ. He is perfect when it comes to masculinity. He is ferocious and powerful like the lion who protects His people and governs them in every way. Absolutely cares, watches over His, his bride with absolute assurance and security. He is powerful as the lion and yet as nurturing and meek and kind as the lamb. Who cares with compassion and nurturing to those who come to Him by faith. He is a shepherd and that is what it is to be a father. You are to be shepherds in your home who with one side of your staff, seek to deliver blows to the enemy, with what the other side to grasp and slowly pull your children to the harvest, to the flock of Christ, and into the flock of Christ. So that your children will give you their heart, Dad. As Solomon writes in Proverbs 23, 26, My son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. Is that your call, fathers, to your children? Give me your heart. Observe my ways. Or is it give me your heart and do as I say, not as I do? Because you will find... In the realm of hypocrisy, that heart will be snatched from you quickly in discouragement and anger. Paul demonstrates almost in a passing way. It's, it's almost fascinating. Once again, it's how the Bible does this with dads. It just assumes certain kind of behaviors. But he, he talks about his own instruction to the church as a spiritual father. But this is what he says here. 1 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12. For you know how like a father with his children, yet yeah, just assumed, like a father with his children... We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Three things there. He exhorted them. Exhorted, right? That's a, a, that's a passionate instruction. It's, it's a passion by which he is calling his, the, these spiritual children and us, our own children, to walk in a manner worthy of God. To, to know of the God who calls him, calls them into His kingdom. It's a passionate instruction. It is one that is marked by both words and example. He, secondly, we encouraged you. Are you encouraging your children? Because 
exhortation without encouragement only breeds legalism. If you're just exhortation, do this, don't do that. Walk in this way. Here's the rules. Here's what you do. But there's never any encouragement. Oh, look how wonderful you did. It's okay. I know you stumbled, but God is bigger. His grace is more sufficient. His mercy is there for you. You can do this. I don't want my children growing up in a works righteous system. I want them to know God has a standard and law, but He all the way provides mercy and grace and encouragement for us to overcome the hurdles that we so often trip over. Exhortation, encouragement. And lastly, He charges them. Notice, I charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God. In other words, fathers are called to direct the purposes of their children towards a life that seeks to enjoy God and live for Him forever. It's it's a father's duty to charge his children, to establish his children's purpose to whatever they do with their life, whatever vocation they should go after, to do so with the glory of God utmost in their mind. Fathers are the ones who speak purpose into the lives of their children. So the question I have to say is, fathers, what do your children see you prioritize and get excited about in life? Do they see you get more excited about going fishing than going to church? And I love fishing. There's a lot of things I love. But do my children see church as a bore, as a waste, as an unfortunate thing and, uh, that we just got to do, and an unnecessary evil that we have to do to make mom happy? Is that what they see? Or do they see excitement? Do they see joy when you sing praises to God? Do they see excitement when you have prayer, a willingness and a desire? Let's go to God's Word and see what He has to say about it. Or is your spiritual life laborious? Because if it is, they will not prioritize it. It will not be a purpose to them. If anything, it will just create resentment for them. Mothers' hearts are primarily geared towards embracing children where they are. That's why so often mothers get so... You, you see a lot, I can't believe they're growing so fast. I just, you just stay little. That's oftentimes where you hear where moms are. Why? Because moms' nurturing capacities are primarily geared towards where their children are. Whereas fathers' hearts are primarily geared towards equipping what their children can be. Not just where they are, but what they can be. And that is what fathers tend their children towards. It isn't just, look at where you are, young man at six and seven. Oh, you're so cute and so sweet. It's, this is what I want you to be when you're a dad one day, when you're a husband, when you're a worker. This is how I want you to be when you're a young woman of God. It is fathers who speak that purpose into the life of their children and direct them in all that they do to living for God. And where a culture is devoid of faithful fathers, it will also be devoid of fruitful purpose. Where a culture is devoid of faithful fathers, it will be devoid of fruitful purpose. So spiritually tend your homes, men. Till the hearts of your children. 
that the seeds of the word of the word of God may fall fruitfully upon them. Thirdly, godly fathers faithfully protect their home. We see this in the next word to give an Adam. We'll see it in all the way through. You are to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. That word protect or keep there is shamar. It means to guard, to protect. The priests were given these same capacities to watch and keep the temple, the tabernacle. It is to protect it. Well, we've got to ask the question, right? Everything's good, right? It's perfect, the perfect world. What could Adam possibly be called to protect the garden from? Well, we're gonna we, we see somebody in just a moment who he was called to protect the garden from. God was well aware of that serpent that goes around like a roaring lion seeking to devour whom he may please, right? God was well aware of that. And Adam is given the capacity and the strength and the calling to keep the garden pure from defilement. To keep it protected. Once again, this idea of protection has both a physical and spiritual function. It's amazing to me though, and here's the Jay, someone who has guns at his home, loves guns, all about physical protection. How we will teach our children the importance of the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms and things like that, but we don't ever uphold and embrace our right to bear a Bible. Yes, physically protect your homes. You should. And if you don't, you're wicked. I'm sorry. You should be one who prepares to fight his home. They may get to them, but they're going to have to go over a whole lot to get to my family. But will you say that spiritually? Will that be your heart spiritually, men? Because we'll be the first to let the door open to some wickedness in our house. My friend, we were called to be in the world, but not of it. In other words, the ship doesn't sink in the presence of water. Water's all around it. The ship stays afloat. The ship only sinks when the water gets in it. That's how it is with the evil in the world. Are you letting the waters of the evil of this world flood your homes through whatever means that may be? What are you doing to gird it up to protect it? This was the call. Adam, keep out anything that would defile this place. Protect it. Protect it. Not only that, but notice, Eve has not been created yet. Adam has no children. God gives His commission directly to Adam. Never once does Eve, we are told, that does God speak and give this commission to Eve. He only gives it to Adam. And who was Adam supposed to give it to? Eve. And to his children. And his children's children. It was his call to lead them faithfully as God's prophet, priest, and king of the garden. And you are called to be a prophet, priest, and king of your home. So not only do you protect it as a priest, you are to deliver the word and will of God as His prophet in the home. To lead and nurture the word so that everyone around you can know how to identify evil. What does it look like to live under obedience to the Lord? And what is outside God's will for us as a family? Deuteronomy 4.9 
Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. Take care. Keep your soul diligent. Do not forget what you've been taught. And how do you do that? What's the best way not to forget? Keep teaching it. Keep teaching it to your little ones. Teach it to your children. Teach it to your families. Adam was given the capacity to protect the garden. But in this commandment to God, or in this commandment from God, excuse me, Adam is also being told to protect the garden from something else. He's being told to protect the garden from himself. To protect his home from himself. Because the day you eat of it, you will die. The day, fathers, you start partaking of the fruit of wickedness in this world is the day you're going to die. The day you will die in the eyes of your children and your family and you'll lead them down with you. Just like Adam left all his offspring and and the entirety of the human race fractured and fallen. Why? Because he failed. Few things will produce more discouragement, resentment, and anger in the lives of your home than your own spiritual failures, Father. I'm not saying you won't have them. You need grace just like all of us do. We all do. But don't walk in hypocrisy. Proverbs 20, verse 7, The righteous who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. Men, the greatest battle that you ever fight in this life will be an arena where no, with no spectators. An arena where if you choose to lay the sword down, it's going to feel like no one else knows about it. You know what? No one will know that I'm looking at these things. No one's going to know that I'm doing this stuff. It's in that arena where your greatest battles will be fought. Why? Because it's in those arenas that the outcome of the battle has the most effect on your families. I promise you that. What you do in secret will make itself the most abundantly clear in your public life. It will. And if you're living in in hidden, habitual sin, your sin will find you out, brothers. It will find you out. So win the battle of integrity. So that your children can see that and be blessed in its abundance. We're going to speed up the pace here. Godly father unashamedly loves his wife. Verse 18 through 25. The Lord God said it's not good that the man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heaven and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. While he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And then the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I love this because God created Adam with a sense of incompleteness. He created him with a sense of incompleteness. And not only that, notice it's not good that man should be alone. I should make a helper fit for him. Well, You would think right then that he would do that. But he doesn't. He then pivots 
has Adam see every one of his animals that he's created in the, in the animal kingdom, has him name them and see that every one of them have a perfect complementary partner. So that he, by the end of it, goes, okay, yeah, I did that, but now I'm even more lonely. Why? God not only creates Adam with sense of incompleteness, He creates a longing in Adam's heart for the wife He's about to create him. So God calls the sleep to fall on Adam, takes rib from his side. Notice, He doesn't follow the same methods He did to create Adam. He purposely chooses to bring the woman out of the man. Fascinating. In other words, she is a part of me, unlike anything else in this world. And I am incomplete apart from her. She will be a helper perfectly fit for him. Why? Not only because she perfectly complimented him in every way, both biologically complimenting him, able to reproduce and multiply, but also in so many ways emotionally, spiritually complimenting him where, where Adam is strong, she may be weak. Where Adam is weak, she will be strong. And together, she will perfectly complement him so that the fullness of God's covenantal mandate to fill the earth with image bearers will be met through their faithfulness. And as God delivers this bride to Adam, like a father who hands his bride off to be married, that's why the father gives his, bride, his daughter to be married. That's where this comes from. Father handing off his daughter. Adam immediately burst in song. Notice the way that it's structured in your Bible. It's a poem. It's song. Adam's like, whoa! There she is. This is what I longed for. And he's unashamed about it. It's public. It's outward. It's okay to make your kids go, yuck, Dad. Because the greatest thing you will ever do for your children is to love their mother. It's to love your wife. Because in it you set the foundation for generations of faithfulness. You show your sons what it is to love and respect a woman. And you show your daughters what it is to be loved and respected. Adam embraces his wife with passion. Notice it is he who speaks truth to her identity. You are a woman. You are taken out of me. You are this. My, my, my friends, if there's one thing that our world wants to do, it wants to attack the identity of our wives, of the women of this world. And it's our duty to faithfully point them back to the identity that God has created them with. Not to let them be lured away by lies. We are to love our bride. And notice, and what we see in Genesis 3 is right after the fall, right after, you know, he blames he, because that's what happens, right? The very first thing that Adam does after God lays out his, his judgment, his chastisement upon them, is Adam gives Eve a name. He calls her Eve. For you will be the mother of all the living. That may seem insignificant in passing, but I want you to know that was a husband pursuing reconciliation. That is the call 
Husbands, be the leader. Fathers, be the leaders who pursue reconciliation in your marriage. It's our call. For we are to love our wives like Christ loved the church. Ephesians 5, 25, 32. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are the members of His body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. In other words, husbands, fathers, when you love your wife unashamedly before your children, you not only are showing and demonstrating what true love is, you are demonstrating what the gospel looks like. So husbands, unashamedly love your wife. A godly father next intentionally pursues his children. So we know what happens, right? Serpent creeps into the garden. Adam does not do his job, right? Deceives Eve. Eve eats it. Notice when Eve eats, nothing happens. It's only when Adam eats that their eyes were immediately opened. Why? Who was given the covenantal mandate? Adam was. Adam could have restored his fallen bride. But he doesn't. He enters into her sin. Whereas Christ, rather than entering into the sin of his fallen bride, redeems and restores her. How? By cutting off the head of the serpent, which is what Adam should have did. But he doesn't. He eats and they fall. And we know what happens, right? They immediately realize they're naked and they go and hide. Why? Because God does what he does. He comes and intimately pursues relationship. He's coming to walk in the garden. 8 and 10 of chapter 3. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. God among the the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I was afraid of, of, of the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. We'll stop there. Godly Father pursues his children, especially in failure. Notice the Lord was walking in the garden as He always did. He was there walking among them in His dwelling. And notice what He does. As He is walking there, Adam and Eve are hidden. Why are they hidden? Because of shame. Shame will call your children to hide from you. To run from you. To not want to face the realities of what they're dealing with. And the question is, is will you pursue them especially in failure? Will you pursue them when they've tripped? Or will you only go after them when their things are good and when they're living up to what your dream for them is? Will you pursue your children especially in failure? The Lord does. The Lord knows what's happened. He knew what was going to happen when He created them. He's not like oblivious. He calls them out. Why? It's not like He's like, I don't know where you're hiding. It's like when you're playing hide and seek with your two-year-old standing behind the broom. It's like, I know where you're at, but you're playing along. Like, no, the Lord knows. And yet He calls them out. Why? Because He's a pursuing God. He's a pursuing Father. And you ought to be as well, fathers. Pursue your children, especially in failure. He sought them out. He calls them by name. 
He seeks to address the issues that's happening. What's, what's happened? He'll ask him a minute, Why do, how do you know that you're naked? I, I, I want to diligently know what's going on, what you're thinking. He doesn't come down cruel and rash and immediately bring the judgment, which he could have. He pursues, especially in failure. Why? Because all of this will be the picture of a good father instructing his children, even through discipline. He pursues his child, children, especially in failure. And this is the whole story of redemption, isn't it? God pursuing wayward, rebellious children and bringing them home. He pursues. And I love this. When Jesus goes to leave, and he's, as He's preparing His disciples for what will be His ascension after His resurrection, He says this in John 14, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And how would He do that? By the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.16 The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. In other words, God, through indwelling us with God, was making clear, there's no place that you'll go that I won't be with you, my children. There's no place I won't pursue you. No darkness I won't go and find you in. Is that your heart, fathers? Do your children know that? Because that will be the difference between them opening up with the truth of their shame rather than lying to you. Lying is produced by the fear of a faithless father who rules cruelly rather than justly. Will you pursue your children, especially in failure? Shame will cause them to hide. Will you seek them out when they run? Our last two here. A godly father practices righteous discipline. I won't read through all of it here, but we know first and foremost, right? So the, we, we see in verse 11, He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to be with, with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Well, stop right there. So here we have our heavenly father doing what so many of us fathers in this room have had to deal with. Two of his children fighting over who did the bad thing. Well, so-and-so did it. No, no, so-and-so did it. And so you're sitting there because you already know what's going on. You're just trying to get them to, dis- to honor, to be honest about what's happened. It's part of discipline, right? And then from forth, the Lord starts laying forth judgment. Now this is judgment, right? Remember, this is the covenant of works. God is establishing judgment. Yet within His judgment, He provides principles for us to see how we should discipline. So the first thing He does is He turns the harshest judgment towards the, 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 the act of evil itself, the person of evil himself, which is the serpent. Right? The Lord addresses and cuts down the evil that has pervaded his home. That's the first thing that discipline does. It addresses the actual thing that's evil. It addresses the problem itself. Do your children understand the concept of sin? Do they realize that in this world, they aren't warring against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers of darkness? Do they know that by based upon what you are ranting and raving about in your home? Or are you addressing the real problems of evil? Do you seek to address it and remove it that it can't hamper and harm your children? That's the first step of faithful discipline. Secondly, 
Even in the midst of this discipline, the Lord provides a picture and promise of restoration. Genesis 3.15, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. That's the proto-evangelium, the first gospel. So even in the midst of this discipline, God is providing a picture that there will be restoration. Is that what we do with our discipline? Are you giving your children in the midst of discipline the hope and promise that there will be restoration? Or is it just, it's all over? Thirdly, the discipline is just. Everything that the Lord provides for Adam and Eve in their judgment is just. Based upon His promises and words. He is just. Actions have consequences. We get to choose the actions. We don't get to choose the consequences. Children need to understand that. But are the consequences just in light of the action? Because if you're honest, people may look at this and go, ooh, God's mean. God was immensely merciful in this moment. Because God, even in the midst of His discipline of Adam and Eve, still provides the means by which their restoration can come. In other words, their discipline was not only just, it was instructive. It was meant to teach them something greater about Him and about themselves. And that is the call of fatherly discipline. Lastly, it's marked by grace. It's marked by grace. God could have just started over. Crushed them. You're done for. But He doesn't. He provides grace even in the midst of what is judgment in this moment. Is your discipline marked by grace as much as it is justice? Proverbs 29, 17, we are called, Discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give you delight. David failed at disciplining his sons, which is why they all went wild. We read in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 5, 6, Now Adonijah, that's David's third son, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him, because his father had never had any time displeased him by asking, What have you done thus and so? In other words, the man after God's own heart, in all of his busyness, was so interested in trying to make his children happy, he forgot to lead them to holiness. And they went wild. We see what happens after. You can try to make your kids spoil them all you want. It will lead to destruction. Promise you that. Instead of faithfully disciplining them. Hebrews chapter 12 is very clear. The Lord disciplines those He loves. You can put up the verse. I'm just going to paraphrase it here. The Lord disciplines the one He loves, chastises every son He receives. The father who does not discipline his sons is treating them as illegitimate children. Because faithful discipline is instructive, it is corrective, and it is restorative. It seeks to bring them back to restoration, not crush them in the midst of judgment. But discipline must be done. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it best, quote, Discipline must always be exercised in love, and if you cannot exercise it in love, do not attempt it at all. If that is not the case for you, then you need to deal with yourself first before you deal with your children, end quote. That hit hard. Godly fathers discipline their children with love. But lastly, and this is the final point, we'll close with this. A godly father compassionately clothes their children with grace. What did God do when it was all said and done? Chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. 
The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Yes, the Lord had to cast them from the garden because of the separation and the covenant of works which was broken. But there would never be a time where God's children would go without. He would constantly clothe them with grace. They had tried to cover themselves with fig leaves, but fig leaves won't hold up in a fallen world. So God clothes them with something that will withstand and uphold the things they will face. God covers their shame with grace. And this is what godly fathers do. They clothe their children with grace and cover their shame with compassion. Are you driving your children to more shame? You're an idiot. You're a fool. You're stupid. You're dumb. you got no hope. You want children that are provoked by anger and discouragement? Just do that. Just speak death into them all day long. You're dumb. You're stupid. You're an idiot. You're a fool. By grace, I am not destroyed by that kind of upbringing. You can be firm and disciplining, but always measured with grace, brothers. Let us be like the Father in the story of the prodigal son. An image of Christ, an image of our Heavenly Father Himself. We see the prodigal, the wayward, the failure, the rebel, the one who's wild. Do you've got a wild child? Pursue them. Pursue them in prayer, in grace, in the Gospel. Pursue them because God is able. Pursue them. Luke chapter 15, verse 20 through 24. The, father, or the son arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. This is a picture of the gospel, what the Father did for us by providing the righteousness of Christ to His wayward children. He clothes us in Christ's righteousness. But just as the Father has done that for us, we should do that for our children. Do we clothe them with grace? When they, when they seek true restoration and repentance, are we just, just holding it over their head or are we clothing them with forgiveness and reconciliation? Because the father didn't just do this with one rebel son. He also did it with another son, the older son, who also brought shame upon his father. Verse 25, And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still long... Or excuse me, I, I, I actually copy and pasted the wrong one there. But nevertheless, the older son hears about his father, right? He hears about his father who is kept there. And his, older brother, his younger brother comes back and the older son leaves the party. He goes out to the field. He's angry that his father would show that kind of grace when he's been there working and faithful all along. In doing and leaving the party in this ancient culture, he brought shame upon his father. And for the father to leave the party would be for him to take the shame upon himself. And that's what he does. Just like an old ancient Hebrew man running through a city. He takes the shame on himself so that his children can be covered with grace. So he goes out to the party to the older brother. And he says, everything that I have is yours. It's always yours. Come back. Your brother was dead and now he's alive. In other words, he's seeking to restore even his older son. 
He takes upon the shame to cover His children with grace. Will that be us fathers? Will that be us who's willing to be the fool, to be embarrassed for the sake of covering our children with grace? Who's less less worried about our pride and more worried about our children's salvation? Psalm 103.13, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. Will our children know our compassion? Will they know our love? Will they know what grace and mercy lives like or looks like as we live our lives with them? Will we reflect our Heavenly Father who does all of these things for us? Who teaches us to whom we belong? Who gathers us where we belong? Who nurtures us? Who protects us? Who loves us and and has loved us with an everlasting love? Who pursues us in failure? Who disciplines us in love? Who clothes us with compassion and grace? Will our children see those same things? 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Will the love of our Heavenly Father be reflected in the love of your homes, earthly fathers? This is the call to godly fatherhood. And by His grace, it is not beyond reach. And by His grace, we can turn the tides because if revival and reformation is to come again, it will begin with godly fathers. I wrote a poem for the ladies, so I figured I'd better write a poem for you guys as well. So we'll close with this today. Men who stand out from the world, holy, astute, and wise. Men who are salt and light to all. Men who model Jesus Christ. Men of faith, men of courage, men with resolve like no other. Men of discipline and duty. This is your calling, O faithful fathers. Men as strong as the lion, yet as gentle as the lamb. Men who love and lead their homes and for righteousness do stand. Men who love and live the word and by it disciple sons and daughters. Men unafraid to sing God's praises. This is your calling, O faithful fathers. Men who work as for the Lord, knowing such deeds are not a waste. Men who plant in water today the fruit their grandchildren will one day taste. Men who shower their families with Christ are deserving of great honor. For blessed is the home that's led by such a faithful Christian father. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for being our great heavenly father. Lord, you love us with an everlasting love. You have covered us with grace. You have shown us immense nurture and protection and care in your steadfast love. Oh, how deep is your love for us. Lord, I pray that every father here today will first and foremost walk out of here knowing you alone as the the all-sufficient means by which they are saved. That there is no salvation apart from Christ and Christ alone, the greater Adam. That they will know to whom and to where they belong. That they will be under your lordship and in covenantal relationship with you. Because apart from that, Lord, all the other things will just be vanity. All the other things will just be a moralistic therapy. Because in the end, Lord, 
They won't know you. So Lord, I pray that today there won't be a father who walks away here without having a right relationship with you. And then Lord, I pray that you will, all of us fathers, that you will pour into us your spirit and your grace and your power and your strength to be precisely what your word calls us to be and what your example shows us in how we are to be. And Lord, I pray for those of us who have failed as a dad. I know I'm I'm right there. I've failed in so many ways. And those who may feel shame because of the fear and failure, let us see the way that you pursue us in love and forgiveness and that you restore us so that we can go and be the dads you've called us to be, the grandfathers you've called us to be, the spiritual fathers to other men and women that you've called us to be. And when those who are hurting today, who may feel lonely or feel the pain of a, uh, of a father that, that wasn't faithful, God set their hearts on you, who is perfect and faithful in every way, who never leaves us or forsakes us, and cares for us all the days of our life. Lord, be with our fathers. Be with the homes that they lead. And may you raise up an army of mighty men of God to advance your kingdom into the world. We say all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.